listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 42, Conspiracy Theories. Welcome back, everybody. I'm really happy to be talking today about something quite topical, given the conspiracy theories around climate change and COVID, among others. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how some people believe really wild theories about COVID. As it turns out, I have a friend who knows a lot about it, and it happens to be my Minding the Brain co-host, Jim Davies. Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Davies, Carlton Professor, Cognitive Science. <laughs> He's been on this before. and, and yeah, a couple episodes, uh, I think. Just a few, right? Uh, and Jim, you, you wrote a book about this, right? Uh, yeah, about this and other things. My 2014 book, Riveted, uh, which is about the psychology behind why we find things compelling, including conspiracy theories, uh, religion, art, and that kind of stuff. Yay. Well, I'm very happy to be talking to you about this because I do want to learn more, and I suspect our listeners would like to learn more, too. So let's start out. What is a conspiracy theory? A conspiracy theory is a theory that says that something we see in the world is a result of a group of people trying to cover something up. And why did people believe in them? Well, when we find an explanation satisfying, we are more likely to believe in it. Uh, so what I mean by that is like there's a, a feeling. You get a, a feeling of satisfaction, and that really makes something sound plausible. Like it feels right. Uh, what many of us aren't aware of is that this feeling is sometimes... Uh, something that is explained really well, and sometimes it's not. But ultimately, the feeling really contributes to how much you believe it. And you might attribute that to mm. some reasons. Sometimes it's caused by reason and evidence, but sometimes it's caused by other factors. Is it the fact that people who believe in conspiracy theories aren't actually using reason and evidence enough? Well, we can't really say that because conspiracy theorists almost always have what, you know, evidence to bring to the table. You know, it might be, you might not agree with the strength of their evidence, but they have their reasons, right? And in this way, it's kind of unlike Christianity, uh, which is explicitly based on faith, meaning that, you know, we don't need a reason to believe in God or whatever. We, we, we acknowledge that it's faith and I don't have to trot out evidence. Um, but conspiracy theorists, um, they do have evidence. They're happy to talk about it often. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And that's, you know, for many people. So you actually have to have some amount of intelligence uh, and being able to think it through critical thinking ability to even to be able to understand a conspiracy theory, right? Sometimes they're complex and even more complex than the truth. Really? Yeah, yeah. Let's take anti-vaxxers. Uh, now, they're not conspiracy theorists for the most part, um, but they do share with uh, conspiracy theorists a distrust in expert opinion. Actually, this is an interesting thing. Um, one difference between religious belief and conspiracy theory belief is that uh, religious people tend to trust authority and conspiracy theorists tend to di distrust authority no matter what authority says. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Anyway, so you might want to say that the anti-vax stance is ignorant or stupid. But when you actually, we see though, when we when we study them, that these people are actually higher than average intelligence, okay? So, you know, it's just that the less educated people, they don't tend to question their doctors. And the really well-educated people understand that they should trust their experts. So it's kind of this middle ground where conspiracy mm. theories and like distrust of experts can sort of take root. It's almost like a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Yeah, it's like that, you know, it's, but in, but instead of like knowledge, it's more like critical thinking ability. I think that's right. Uh, it's, it, they have to have enough critical thinking ability to get themselves into trouble, but perhaps not quite enough to get them out of it again. <laughs> but, you know, that's not to say they're super rational. Like, there's one study that found that people who believe that Princess Diana was deliberately killed, like murdered, also believe that she's still alive. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> 
Like, they hold both beliefs? Well, you give them a questionnaire and you ask them what conspiracy theories they believe in, like, or what, what, what they believe really happened, and many of those are conspiracy theories. And on the same questionnaire, you can say that um, you believe that Princess Diana was murdered, and they'll say yes. And in the same questionnaire, do you believe that Princess Diana is still alive? And they also say yes. And so this this uh-huh. makes sense if you look at conspiratorial thinking as a personality trait or a mental trait that makes you distrust whatever authority says. So if the authority mm-hmm. says um, that Princess Diana was killed in a car accident and it was purely an accident, then the idea that she was murdered and the idea that she's still alive both disagree with the the, the what the authorities say happened, right? So, you know, that's... But, but it is completely irrational in the sense that they're holding a contradictory belief. They're probably just not thinking about them both at the same time. Um, hmm. We also find that if someone believes in one conspiracy theory, like if you ask about a particular conspiracy theory, they're very much more likely to believe in a whole bunch of other ones. And as it turns out, even if they contradict each other. And other people who don't believe in any particular conspiracy theory also tend to believe in none of them. Yeah, I I would say that that's that's me. I don't really believe in any of them. But so for in general, for many conspiracy theories, you'd have to do like intellectual backflips to make it work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, like some of these conspiracy theories are so poorly supported by evidence and reason that you have to make incredibly convoluted narratives to make them work in a sense, you know? And that's, you know, it's an it's kind of an act of creativity. <laughs> you know, when you think about it, like if, if I were to give you a conspiracy, like you're a smart person, I would, some would mm. say brilliant. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> outstanding. Ooh. <laughs> um, but, you know, if I were to give you a given conspiracy theory, okay, like moon, the moon landing was faked, and just as an intellectual exercise asked you to come up with an, an essay arguing that it was a conspiracy, you'd probably do a pretty good job because you're a smart and creative person. So, in a sense, the smarter and more creative you are, the better you are at coming up with these convoluted explanations and the counter evidence. You can imagine that somebody who's not very thoughtful or can't think things through would, wouldn't be very good at that, right? Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's a really distressing study. <laughs> you know, universities, they often have a critical thinking course, like often in the philosophy department. Um, and unfortunately, studies show that uh, those skills don't make people disbelieve in things like pseudoscience uh, any less. Okay, now here's what happens. At the end of the class, they tend to disbelieve in pseudoscience and conspiracy theories and all the things that critical thinking is supposed to target. But it turns out it's not because they're better critical thinkers. So they, they don't apply the critical thinking the way we hope to have them arrive at these views. It turns out that the class becomes enculturated into the values of the classroom. So they believe it because of something called like groupthink or a herd instinct that they're just trying to like follow along with everybody else in the room? Yeah, yeah. They you enter a classroom, right, and you're a student and you have respect for the professor, usually of some to some extent. Uh, and you know, the whole and they're teaching that astrology is not real and, you know, uh they're, 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 they're debunking a whole lot of things. And there's this like subtle feeling in the class as a culture, if you think of it like a cultural entity, that people who believe in these things are wrong and dumb and to be laughed at in a way, right? So the, the, because you want to belong, uh, it turns out that people end up, you know, believing the things that the class wants you to believe um, as you're learning supposedly critical thinking skills. But um, when people are presented with new problems after the class, they're not, they're not quite as good at critical thinking as we would hope. So, so it's Really, I mean, it's really hard to change people's minds with reason and evidence, it turns out. 
So is that why when we give students A's, we are rewarding them for thinking the right things? It's an interesting philosophical point about education, right? Like, so I teach about evolution in my class, you know, and I, I, I tell my students, you know, I understand that many of you come from religious traditions that tell you not to believe in evolution. Um, and But as far as this class is concerned, evolution is true. And if you want to get good grades, you have to answer the questions on the test mm. as though it were true. <laughs> so, oh, um, you know, but, you know, but this is the way it always is. You know, I teach, mm-hmm. uh, I teach things that end up being false. Like, I was just on Facebook today, Mm. and uh, someone said that the study that shows that handwritten notes are better than, like, typing your notes on a computer, that study has failed to replicate. Uh, Oh, gosh. I I haven't tracked down the evidence for it, but if that's true, I've been teaching something that's false for years, right? Um, And I test them on it. (laughs) Like, they have to know that false thing. Maybe getting off on a tangent here, but, like, the idea is, you know, like, people... They study these things. They have to. You're sort of coercing them to believe it to some extent, or at least remember it well enough to be able to answer test questions on it. Um, and yeah, that is a kind of reward. We are also hopefully teaching them that science isn't. You know, it's not um, the. You know, every piece of evidence is just that evidence. It's not necessarily the truth or the fact. Right? Yes, that's a great point. Hopefully, right? We we teach students that this is the this is the the best that we have, and you know, this amount of evidence suggests that this phenomena exists, and and that can change with new technology, new approaches to answering old questions, replicability. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I think a lot of conspiracy theorists and anti-science folk uh, get lost in the, oh, but, you know, a study came out that said X and last week you said Y and science is wrong. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it's not about that. It's, yeah. it's about the mounting evidence. And that's really where we're at with COVID, right? Where scientists were finding new information about this every day and new, new papers are being published and often they're preprints, which means they're not peer reviewed mm-hmm. necessarily because we have to get the information out as quickly as possible. But uh, we, you know, we're, we're trying to be nimble and make public health decisions based on the best available science. And sometimes we get it wrong. But, uh, you know, the, the, the stuff that we're getting right and that is real and true and strong evidence for, that tends to keep rising to the top like cream, right? So we know masks uh, prevent uh, transmission, for example. There, you know, the evidence for that is stronger than the evidence against it. So I think that those are crucial points in, in our efforts to educate around what science does. What yeah, science and I'll, I'll probably use this, uh, if it turns out to be uh, unreplicated, I'll probably use this as a, a teaching moment for, for right. science. I'll say, look, I taught for years, but it turns out it failed to replicate. Yeah. So now I'm telling you that it doesn't make a difference. And, you know, this, this is what this is a, a feature, not a bug of science. <laughs> Exactly. Back to convincing. Back to yeah. Yes, back to convincing. So we, you know, sometimes we, I guess we reward, you know, folks for thinking the right things. And in, in what we're talking about, we're talking about classroom and students um, not believing in pseudoscience. But how do we, how do we correct course the other way? This is a really good question. And I, I would love to do a little bit more looking into this because on the one hand, it really seems like people can be convinced by reason and evidence. I, I certainly feel like I am. Um, but mm-hmm. the studies that I've seen, they seem to suggest that because people will weigh the evidence in favor of the beliefs they already have and everything, that one of the strongest ways to change beliefs is to basically make them feel ashamed to have them. Like, you know, if they've got mm-hmm. something wrong, making them feel like they are they don't belong or there's something wrong with them for believing that is a way to change beliefs because the reasoning and evidence, it's hard to make it work. 
that is uh, that's a pretty depressing tactic. <sighs> I know it is so it, because like. As scientists and and as decent people, we see that as fundamentally coercive and and like yeah, we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be mm-hmm, making people yeah. believe or not believe because we make them feel bad about themselves. Um, but uh, you know, people who have strong beliefs in something, they will you know, you know, you tell them, well, this study found this that disagrees with what you say, and they will find a reason to discount the study. Right. Mm. So this is in psychology. I find this often now with some of my friends who are really into the uh, replication crisis and doing good science. If I mention a study that uh, disagrees with what they say, they'll be, well, I would want to see that study and whether they were p-hacking and what, you know, the number of subjects. Mm. And they don't say that for things that they already believe. So, mm. like, the replication crisis has given people even more power to uh, have confirmation bias with what they already believe by being able to discount any study you bring up, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. uh, it might not have been replicated or something, right? Um, so, for for yeah. listeners who aren't in uh, psych or, or psychology or under, or know about the replication crisis, it's emerged over the last five ten years. Um, this idea that studies, particularly in fields of social and, and personality psychology, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, have been some like dogmatic papers have, have been shown to be failing to replicate, meaning somebody else in a different lab tries to rerun the study and they can't find the same, um, results. And so that's led to sort of this overall critical, uh, approach to the fields overall, right? Yeah. Yeah. Things that we took mm-hmm. for granted and put in textbooks for years. Um, mm-hmm. it turns out many of them. You know, it might have been a fluke. It might have been chance, those original things. So anyway, let's talk. Let's take an example. Like, uh, let's take the moon landing. So some people believe that it was faked. Okay. Um, Now, there's so much evidence for the moon landing that to maintain a belief that it was faked means that you have to be mentally prepared to come up with alternative explanations for every bit of evidence. Now, we're getting back to like how much cognitive skill and flexibility it takes to believe in a conspiracy theory, right? Because there's so much evidence that the moon landing happened to be able to uh, discount all that evidence and come up with an alternative to all of it Mm -hmm. is pretty impressive. Well, was the moon landing faked? You know, this is I got a funny story about this. One of my advisors, one of my advisors in graduate school worked on some stuff related to the moon landing. And she mentioned this offhand during one of our research meetings. And I remember thinking, okay, if the moon landing was faked, even my supervisor was involved. Like even <laughs> even she's like like deciding that we should be have fooled the public and after 50 yeah. years, she's still being quiet about it and won't even tell me. Like it, it just struck me that I mean, I didn't believe in the moon landing being faked at that point, but it just it just hit home to me that the scope, like the sheer scope of the deceit would have had to have been so vast that it's just basically impossible, you know? I, I hear this a lot, too, with like people thinking like entire governments are involved in some sort of conspiracy. And I and and my f- folks, friends that are working in civil service, and they're like, have you ever seen uh, any anybody like any project in the government like be run so smoothly like that with n- like zero flaws or any challenges like that's it just can't happen right somebody would have spilled something by now right like it, that's just impossible that we can keep these kinds of levels of secrets involving thousands of people quiet for for this long right the moon landing was in the 60s yeah yeah I, I think the biggest mistake if i could make like point out the biggest mistake that conspiracy theorists make is their overconfidence in people's ability to keep their mouths shut 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, exactly. after 50 years with thousands of people, somebody's going to feel bad about the deception and say something, you know, maybe on their deathbed or somebody's going to have a change of heart. Uh, but nobody's done that with the moon landing. Nobody's come forward and said, yes, I was a part of a conspiracy to hide it. And, and I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just hasn't it hasn't happened. Yeah, one of the one of the things that we know about humans is they talk, right? Social yep. uh, realities, right? People love having secrets, and uh, unless yeah, people talk. Yeah, they talk. So now, now let's you know some of our listeners might be thinking, well, aren't there real conspiracies? Absolutely, right? There mm-hmm. have been real conspiracies. People do try to cover things up, but what happens is they tend to get discovered pretty quickly <laughs> because somebody talks. Uh, they mm-hmm. might have moral problems with the secrecy. Uh, there, there are incentives to talk, right? You might want fame or credit for going to the press. You want to become famous for, for bl- blowing the lid off of it, right? And the more people are involved, the harder it is to keep a secret. That's just sort of a, it's almost like a law of human psychology, Right. So like real conspiracies are include, for example, like Nixon's Watergate scandal. That was a that was a real conspiracy. And how did it blow up? Well, somebody talked. Right. There was an there was an Mm -hmm. FBI informant with a code name Deep Throat. I don't know where they came up with that, (laughs) but this is true. Uh, The code name was Deep Throat. And this FBI informant blew the lid off of it. Now that. Sometimes secrets are kept really well. Um, one of the most impressive to me was the Manhattan Project. This was the American-led project to create an atomic bomb. And they managed to do that, and the secret didn't get out. And there were thousands of people involved. However, one interesting thing about it is that many people, perhaps most people working on the project, were sworn to secrecy, even though they didn't know what they were building. So this is interesting, right? You had all these people mm. in Los Alamos, New Mexico, at a secret lab, and they're sworn to secrecy. Uh, even their wives, like mostly men, right? So their, the, the wives who weren't involved with the research had no idea. And sometimes the, the scientists themselves had no idea what the ultimate goal of the project was. So how um, did that get leaked? It didn't get leaked. We blew up a bomb before anyone ever oh. leaked it, right? This is why it's one of the impressive ones, right? And mm. another one, was, but, but notice that they kept very, very few people were in on the secret. And I think mm. that they really believed in the importance of the secret, Okay, like protecting Mm -hmm. Nixon. Okay, you know, who's (laughs) but like, you know, they're everyone's worried about the Nazis and the, um, you know, taking over the world. Right. So like the the, the reward for like leaking that right is Mm -hmm. is, like you might be responsible for something terrible happening to the world. Right. Um, And like I think the longest secret I know about was the British Colossus computer. That's a code-breaking computer for World War II, and um, people who worked on it were sworn to secrecy, and they ke- somehow they kept it secret until the 70s, the 1970s. So many, many years. So, but these are these are you know these are interesting because they're so rare, like the, yeah. these actual conspiracies that are that are that managed to stay secret for a long time. Or maybe it's just that British can keep their mouth shut for long periods of time. <laughs> That's the lesson. You got to have the British involved with the conspiracy. <laughs> right? Okay, so you we're, you know, we're talking about conspiracy theories and and there's something that makes them compelling, right? Yeah. And yeah. and and they are compelling. I like to hear about them. They're fascinating. I, I my favorite is the MK Ultra um conspiracy, which again is one that has has since turned out to be true or the people trying to control people's minds here in in Montreal by using uh psychoactive drugs. Uh-huh. 
and you know they're fascinating but I, I i don't personally believe in them even though um i am quite a what i would say is i'm a pretty critical thinker but as you were saying earlier maybe it's because i'm so much more critical thinking i don't know anyway so well, well you're also in a culture i mean i'm not trying to discount your critical thinking yeah. those, but you, but you and i are both in a culture where you get laughed at if you endorse a conspiracy believe theory something kooky yeah, yeah i mean true. you do, and if you do believe it you tend to keep quiet about it with your scientific colleague right you know so, but so what what is it that makes them so compelling yeah, well, I think that, you know, the fact that they are fascinating, even to people who don't believe in them, points to one of the reasons. They're really good stories, you know, and sometimes some stories and some explanations are so good that they feel like they have to be true. Like it's a it's a, right. a fact too good to check, <laughs> sometimes they say. So what's the magic sauce? Is it Hellman's mayonnaise? Hellman, <laughs> it's Hellman's mayonnaise. Um, conspiracy theories. So they always have, there are two things that conspiracy theories have that are kind of like magic for the mind. They really turn us on. It involves pe- people and it involves secrets. Mm, and it's well known. I like those things. Yeah, everybody does. It's well known across media and religion that people are interested in people. Like this is no shocker, okay? Um, and all else being equal, we are going to be much more interested in stories stories or explanations that have to do with people, people interacting than ones that don't. And there is one, a conspiracy theory, I don't know if anybody believes anymore, that AIDS was constructed as a biological weapon. Yeah, makes right. Me think of the, the vaccines right now, right? Being yeah. implanted with chips, very similar kind of right, right. thinking. So, so if we can compare that theory to the one that scientists tend to endorse about AIDS, like that it was a disease yeah. in non-human primates and it jumped to humans. Um, if you th- compare that to the idea that it was created as a biological weapon, uh, one, you know, the one that it, the idea that it was created deliberately is is kind of more interesting, you know, to the average thinker, right? It, you want to, you might ask more about if you were to ask more about one of them, you might be more inclined to ask more about the the conspiracy one, right? Mm. And another important thing about it is that the scientific theory doesn't have a reason. Like there's mm. like AIDS and HIV did not enter human beings for any reason, mm. but it has a cause. A cause, right? Right. So causes mm-hmm. are not reasons, right? and I think that understanding the difference between causes and reasons is very important for critical thinking in general and understanding conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories part of the reason they're attractive is that they offer reasons for things that feel like mm. they need, that feel like they need reasons particularly when right. big things happen people want reasons and not just causes the causes are not as satisfying like at a very mm. primal level so uh, there's something about a huge disaster that happening for no reason at all that strikes people as unsatisfying, right? So the bigger the event is, the more important it is, the bigger the explanation has to be to be satisfying. So this has been found in the lab. So conspiracy theorists tend to satisfy this desire for big explanations for big events. Uh, now, in science, we prefer simpler explanations, but as uh, conspiracy theories get more complex, they get more fascinating, and some people find them even more believable. So there's this sort of an opposite effect going on of what should be happening, is that the more complex and convoluted the conspiracy theory is, the more interesting it gets and the more attractive it gets for uh, being believed. Like Kennedy being killed. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great example, mm-hmm. right? So JFK, like, mm-hmm. John Kennedy was shot, okay? Uh, everybody kind of agrees that he was shot by, um, I can't remember his name. Oh, gosh. Lee Harvey Oswald, right? Yes. Everybody agrees with that, but what they, but some people, you know, people, some people disagree about whether there was more behind it, okay? Now, the idea that such an important person was killed by just one guy who just had his own agenda, mm. it just doesn't mm-hmm. feel right, as right, right. Of, as an explanation mm-hmm. of a huge event, right? So, mm-hmm. like, when Joe Blow gets murdered, people don't tend to look for big, complex explanations, right? Like, some you hear about some guy in some small town getting murdered in a bar mm-hmm. fight. 
or getting shot, you're, you know, the you know the idea that he was jealous and shot somebody is fine. Why? Because yeah. Joe Blow d- did not change the course of history, okay? But if right. Kennedy gets shot, oh, no, it can't be just one guy, right? Mm-hmm. It's too big a deal for it to be just like a simple mm-hmm. explanation. So they tend to look for these really big, complex explanations that feel more satisfying. And we see that in religion too, right? Uh, what do you, like what? What are you thinking? Well, when the tsunami hit Thailand, there were religious people claiming it was God punishing Thailand for all the sexual misconduct going on there. Yes, yes, that happened. That happens right. all the time. I mean, we should add that not all religious people thought this, but there were some very vocal mm. religious people who were pushing that theory. Um, you know, and some religious people even said AIDS was God's way of punishing people for their deviant ways. Right. So I, I think all of this stems from from this desire for big explanations. So the other thing you mentioned was secrets. Secrets, yes, right. So people love secrets, okay? If you look at Shakespeare's plays, they're full of them. Like, Mm. there are always people spying on other people and learning something and misinterpreting it, and we just eat it up. When we feel in on a secret, okay, we also feel good about ourselves, right? So one of the... Um, one of the things, uh, like, we love gossip, for example. Gossip's all about secrets. We love knowing things that others do not. We love hearing about other people's secrets. So if there's an explanation that involves secrets or some kind of hidden knowledge, it becomes more attractive. And, and we feel good about ourselves when we know a secret. We feel it, it almost gives a, an illusion of power, right? Yes, absolutely. I have I have this knowledge and somebody else doesn't. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel that way about science sometimes. I mean, honestly, like I, mm. I because I read science every day and I'm constantly, I know how to use Google Scholar and I can just like quickly look up something and find out if it's supported. I feel superior to a lot of people like who don't who don't do that um and it's not hidden knowledge but it's it's knowledge that not everybody has and so you feel a kind of superiority when you know something that everybody else doesn't and this might be part of why people uh who mm. feel alienated from society are more likely to believe yes. in conspiracy theories so right there are psychological traits that make people prone to conspiratorial thinking they tend to have a looser personal morality, for example. They feel alienated, but they also, uh, they're more likely to be part of a conspiracy themselves. <laughs> oh, so wow. Kind of, well, they're kind of like generalizing like, well, I would, I mean, subconsciously perhaps, but they're like, well, I would I would do this so other people would too, right? Yeah, and I, I read somewhere um, a scholar sort of interpretation of the QAnon conspiracy yeah. and that a lot of the folks that gravitate to the QAnon have in, have often been uh, outsiders, right? They've been kind of rejected from society in some way and they've experienced some massively traumatic event uh, like their wife leaving them or like somebody dying without any explanation and that tends to also um, lead them to gravitate towards alternative explanations of, of fact so yeah so when you're talking to somebody who has this holds this conspiracy theory and and you know speaking of QAnon I, I hear you know there's folks I know in the states who have lost family members uh, to to this movement I don't know what else to call it but uh, so and and seeking like how how do we talk to folks who are really hardcore conspiracy theorists um, uh, on any given topic but anything you would say to to them I either support their view directly or indirectly supports it in some virtue of being part of a cover-up right like you can't mm-hmm. you can't uh, you know it's like like you said you just keep providing evidence and they'll keep finding counter evidence right this is something that makes conspiracy theory so hard to combat like in a conversation or in the media or whatever because any evidence you show them yeah. That, that they're wrong can get interpreted as part of the cover-up, right? So if you believe yeah. that there's a very powerful group of people who are deliberately engaged in a disinformation campaign, then if, you know, counter evidence that you give them can, to them, be categorized as part of the cover-up. They can sort of explain anything away that way. 
Yep. Uh, that's what I find uh, honestly depressing. Like if there's somebody who is like a very strong political or, or very famous figure who's a COVID denier, let's say, or anti-vaxxer and is very much, you know, popular in the media. And let's say they, they catch COVID and die. Right. Uh, I, I think people would not use that as, oh, I guess COVID is real, right? No. They would probably say, oh, they died for some other reason and, you know, people are saying it's COVID and it's not. You know, like they, it's immune to criticism. Both evidence and counter evidence are treated as support for their given conspiracy theory. Yeah. And and just on the, the celebrity thing, I just want to add something I heard. I don't know if this is backed up by any science or anything, but I heard that uh, conspiracy theorists didn't think Clinton was involved with a massive conspiracy theory because um, if he were in that kind of position, he would not have been in the trouble he got into with Monica, Monica Lewinsky. Lewinsky. So like the fact that mm. he got like hugely shamed and meant that he wasn't right. on the in crowd. So like conspiracy theorists oh trusted God, Clinton crazy. more because... <laughs> Because he actually got caught doing something. Anyway, but what you're saying, yes, it's immune to criticism. And this is something, if any of our listeners are, uh, if, if you're like listening to this and thinking, geez, maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist. Um, I, you know, this is something that is really important to think about. Like, uh, if, if like everything you hear... Hmm counts as evidence for your theory, there's something seriously wrong with your theory, right? Like, mm. uh, once something is classified in the mind as part of a cover-up, it supports the conspiracy theorist's overall narrative, okay? And mm. then they they classify it as that, and then they don't have to question it again. So, like, one thing I do, I tell my students, like, if you're going to argue with a conspiracy theorist, don't argue evidence and facts. you got to argue epistemology. Meaning, what are your the standards of evidence for what is true? Right, right. If you're not used to thinking about the conspiracy theories, theorists, if you go up against one, uh, you're, you you're going to get trounced if they're, if they're smart. Like, because you're just not prepared. They're prepared for all of that. And you don't even, if you just take it for granted that something's true, you're, you're not spending a whole lot of clock cycles in your head coming up with arguments for that thing. Okay, but you talk to somebody who's like believes in chemtrails or believes in this and that. They're like, "How do you explain this? How do you explain this? What about this?" Mm-hmm. And you're and you'll get beat. Okay, so <laughs> and and God forbid you you actually end up believing in it, right? So um, and anything you bring up, they are going to are, they're probably heard it before, and they're probably gonna, they probably have an explanation in their head that they're just going to trot out, and you're not going to budge them. So um, because this has a built-in method for disqualifying any counter evidence. Uh, people will sometimes turn to conspiratorial thinking uh, when they are shown evidence that contradicts their views. So you you like give somebody, they believe in something, you say, well, that's not true because of this, right? There's a part of their mind that's going to try to push them toward a conspiratorial mm. explanation for what you just told them. Can you give us an example? Uh, all right, let's look at young earth creationism. Okay, so this is uh, primarily Christian belief that the earth is about 6,000 years old and evolution didn't happen and God created all the species that we see roughly at the same time and they didn't evolve, okay? So, Mm. if you are a young earth creationist, okay, what about all the fossils that we find that appear by carbon dating and other geological reasons to be many thousands of years old? Dinosaurs, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, dinosaurs, right. So, if God created all the species at once, why are there so many fossils of extinct animals Mm -hmm. that are not around today? And why does a particular animal's fossil tend to appear only in the rock that is from a different time and not others? Oh, I know the answer. What? Evolution. Good. Yes, Kim. Two points. Bonus points for Kim. All right. So that's so evolution. That's what's true. Okay. But young Earth creationists have to have some kind of explanation for all of this counter evidence about the age of the Earth and the origin of species. So 
suddenly the uh, religious believer takes on a conspiracy theory flavor. Now, not all religious people do this, right? But some. And this explanation is that Satan planted those fossils to trick us. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's confirmation bias. Right. Now, Kim is laughing at the conspiracy theorists, which we normally think is impolite. But as we've already established, this is actually an excellent way to get people to stop believing in it. So you laugh at people who think Satan planted all this. (laughs) Anyway, but you can see it's an intellectual route that allows you to preserve your beliefs, right? Right? So you're, you, you firmly believe in young earth creationism. Everybody you know believes in it. The people you care about would ostracize you if you violated it. Your mind is in dissonance when you hear about this counter evidence. So uh, this is a way out. He's like, oh, that's easy. We know that there's an evil entity called Satan. Um, Satan's there trying to get us to not believe in God by and, and young earth creationism by planting fossils there with the explicit attempt to trick us. It's, it's actually a religious version of a conspiracy theory. I mean, it's not like a cabal of shadowy CE. But it is a (laughs) malignant entity who's trying to deceive us. Like, basically, the fossils are presented as a disinformation campaign from Satan. Uh, And, and, you know, there's not really anything you can say to them because any evidence for the old Earth of evolution is brought into their narrative as part of Satan's grand deception. And, to your point, Mm. evolution is a cause and not a reason. Oh, yes. Yes, this is one of the reasons that people have, some people have a very hard time accepting evolution, right? And they say, like, what, do you think human Mm. human beings are just appeared by chance? And the answer is basically yes. Like, they did. Mm -hmm. And it just Mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, something as glorious and complex Mm. as humanity, all the ecosystems in the world that we're just, you know, barely understanding because it's so immensely fascinating and complex, the idea that that happened for no reason at all and just by a whole bunch of coin flips, like, even I can feel why that feels implausible to mm-hmm. people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this isn't how science works. No, no. So in, in, in the regular old world, if a theory can explain anything you could possibly observe, it's viewed as a good thing. But in science, a strong theory says basically, uh, if this theory is true, you will never observe this, X, Y, and Z. You will never mm-hmm. see this, okay? And, you know, if you do observe X, Y, and Z, or Z, as we say in Canada, then the theory has to be discarded or changed. So like a really strong scientific theory doesn't explain anything you could possibly see. It's stronger if it says, okay, if my theory is true, go ahead and look all you want. You will never mm-hmm. see this happen. And, mm-hmm. and, and, if you, and if the theory has a lot of those and we look for them and we can't find them, then, then mm-hmm. we can say, that's pretty impressive. That's really impressive. So like up it, for evolution, like people say, oh, evolution is unfalsifiable. Well, there is potential counter evidence. Like if we found a rabbit, a rabbit fossil in a Precambrian strata of geology, we'd have to really sit up and be like, okay, what's going on here? Because this violates right. a lot, but we never find that. And that's part of what makes evolution super strong. And so a good thing to ask a conspiracy theorist is what kind of evidence would convince you you had this wrong? Yes. Now that's a great question. That that's that's like what we mean by questioning epistemology. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, try to get them to say, what What could possibly convince you that, that you were wrong about this? What could mm. you see or read or could, you know, that would make you question this? And if the answer is nothing... You know, if they can't come up with anything, which is typically what happens, because the conspiracy theorist, um, as we see, their mind is set up to be able to take anything that they hear or see into their narrative. Then you can start to bring up um, that they've got themselves in an intellectual trap. They're they're in a um, they're in an intellectual trap that they can't get out of. Uh, if there's nothing they could see that could possibly change their mind, you could talk about how they have an unfalsifiable theory and they're they're just stuck. So that works. No. <laughs> I mean, but 
<laughs> don't think it, nuts. I don't really know if it works. I don't know if I've ever convinced anyone. Uh, I know of 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 not believing in a um, conspiracy theory. I, you know, I, I think it's worked with free will though. Like people who don't believe mm. in free will, I've used the unfalsifiability argument to show that they're in an intellectual trap. So anyway, <laughs> well, you know, we well, don't we don't have all the answers here. <laughs> no, we don't. But hey, hopefully this was entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you, Kim. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Mindingthebrain.com